Paul Sloan here. Welcome to my podcast series where I talk to some people I know about the influences, turning points and lessons from their lives. I'm pleased to say that today uh, my guest is a former professional wrestler, music impresario and nightclub owner, Mr Bob Archer. Bob, nice to see you. How do you do? (laughs) You do. So Bob, tell me please, when and where were you born? I was born in Chelmsford, Essex or... uh... All my family were around there. And when was that? I was born in 1937. So you lived through the war. Do you have any memories of the war? Do you remember? I do indeed, yeah, because uh, we we all lived with my nan in her little three-bedroom house. That was my mother, uh, my brother and I. My father was away uh, in the army. And also my uncle, auntie. And then they had a daughter. So there was quite a lot of us in this small house. We kept chickens in the back garden because, you know, and, and grew vegetables. And, we, and my uncle had an allotment because, you know, things were difficult to, to come by. And my mother, uh, she worked for the post office and drove a post office uh, delivery van. And do you remember the bombing at all? Oh, yes. In, in fact, um, my mother, when she was driving the post office van, Doodlebug landed uh, uh, fairly adjacent and it blew the van from one side of the road to the other. But she survived. Yeah. And of course, I say, my father, I didn't really know him until the end of the war because he, in Ireland, and then he went to India and Burma. Yes. So it was quite a shock when this very aggressive uh, fit guy arrived at the end of the war. And he, he was a professional wrestler in his day, wasn't he? He was a professional wrestler, yeah. Yes. Yeah, quite well known one, yeah. So tell me a little bit about school. What was school like for you? School was, uh, went to a local junior school and then uh, got through the 11 plus and went to the Mid-Essex Technical School. I used to cycle everywhere, so I used to cycle to school and then I did a paper round which I also cycled. Yeah. And what were you good at at school? I suppose the, uh, the best subject that I, I got the highest mark of, uh, in our school in that particular year, I got 80% was um, English. So how did you get into wrestling? I started wrestling when I was about nine years old. There was a local um, club at the local police gym. And then someone came up to my father a while later and said, your boy's doing well with wrestling. And he said, what wrestling? He didn't know that I'd uh, been going to this club. I think I had my first professional match about when I was about 18, 19. Well, I was due for national service, but uh, in the meantime, I'd, I'd um, applied for air crew. Anyway, I, I, I did get through, I wasn't really to become a pilot, but I did get through as an air signaller. But in fact, I had a motorbike accident. And anyway, the air signallers were going out. Mm. The new air electronics officers were coming in with the V-bombers. What so, happened in the motorbike accident? Um, I hit Battles Bridge on the way to South End. We were uh, four of us on two motorbikes going to South End on the bank holiday. Something happened, which I don't know what, because I woke up in Billericay Hospital. With a fractured skull? Yeah. And then you were discharged from the Royal Air Force? From the Royal Air Force. Because of that injury? Yeah, yeah. And you became a wrestler? Yes. How, what year was that? How old were you then when you had the accident? Must have been um, 18. Yes. Yeah. And you did well in wrestling, didn't you? I believe you, in, eventually you wrestled for the World Championship, is that right? 
Well, that was in Paris, yeah. I was flown over to Paris to wrestle with a guy called René Benchimol, who they claimed, the French claimed, was the world champion at my weight. We got interviewed on television, and I think the match was, was televised. And how did you go on in that? Well, he beat me. Yeah. It was at the Palais de Sport in Paris, which is quite a big arena. Subsequently, I did a lot of work in France. It was the pro- promoters over there got to know me. And am I right that you retired from wrestling and then you made a comeback in your 40s? That's right, yeah. <laughs> and how long did that last? Just one year. And any other famous names you wrestled? Well, there was, of course, there was Mick McManus. He yeah, was, was Jackie Pello. Yes. Um, they were probably the two of the, when television came in, they were the two of the, that became quite well known. And your brother wrestled too, is that right? Did... Yeah, he wasn't really interested until I actually became a wrestling promoter. I left I left joint promotions who were the big people that had the television promotions, etc. And I, I joined the opposition uh, promoters. It was all over a union that we'd formed and we were told that we had to be in no part of the And union. you were a union so, leader of some kind. And, and, and I'd been voted on the committee, so I wouldn't sign. So they got rid of you? Yeah, but I knew I was pretty safe because... Guys I was very friendly with, they yeah. had this uh, yeah, rival group. It was then that I did a lot more work in France because, you know, their, their circuit wasn't as big. But they, they also they became my, my best friends and also my partners subsequently in the um, Cromwellian Club. We'll come on to that. But tell me about your brother. Didn't I believe you were a very good tag team, is that right? Well, that's right. So he, when I had this wrestling promotion, he, he worked as a second yeah. And he began to get a bit interested then. I trained him up, and uh, he became my tag team partner, the Anthony brothers. Uh, how far did you get as a tag team? The big rivals were the Cortez brothers, and we had some big matches with them. And eventually we took the title. Uh, so we became the tag team champions in our weight class. Excellent. Well done. You and your brother, Chris, wrestled, but you, uh, you wrestled under the name of the Anthony brothers. Why weren't you called the Archers? My father, he wrestled also, and he used to wrestle as Bob Archer O'Brien, and I didn't want to have the same name as him. And if people search on YouTube for Bob Anthony wrestler, they'll find you wrestling Mick McManus and people, won't they? That's right, yes. So, so when did you start putting on music? Gosh, that was in the, in the 60s. What I did, I, there was a local corn exchange in my hometown where they held the wrestling. In Chelmsford? In Chelmsford. And it was... It was also a skating ring, and I managed to hire it. I put on bands every Saturday night. So what sort of bands did you get? Everybody that was anybody in in that era. The bands that really were popular there were um, more of the rhythm and blues bands. I used the Who there a lot, and Georgia Fame, Zoot Money. Somewhere here I've got a a whole programme of... uh, so you were looking through some of the bands you booked for Chelmsford in 66 and 67. Tell us those, some of those names that you picked out, please. Um, this was 1966, yes. Uh, September 24th, Brian Olga Trinity uh, with Julie Driscoll. October the 22nd, The Move. October 15th, The Who. November 26th, Cream. December 17th, The Alan Price Set. Uh, 67, January 21, The Small Faces. February 25th, Jimi Hendrix Experience. April 22, Bo Diddley. August 19, Eric Burden and the Animals. September 23rd, Pink Floyd. December 16, Fleetwood Mac with Peter Green. Fantastic list. And uh, what sort of price was admission in those days to the club? Well, it was was six and sixpence before 8.30 and seven and sixpence after 8.30. Very good value. And you you met all those people there, did you? Oh, yes. And and a lot of these bands also, or most of them, um, also worked at the Cromwellian. 
Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll frequently very very good good band. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix uh, he he used to come in and, and sit in very often, and and so Eric Burden he was and and uh, some of the other animals they used to like to come and so sit. So you booked them first in Chelmsford and then they came in subsequently to the Cromwellian, or or maybe they'd been to the Cromwellian before. Tell me about the Who. What were they like? Well, tell me who, about them. They were uh, they were a bit crazy. I always remember one night when the Who were um, were booked and I had the place full, absolutely full up, and no band, no equipment. Eventually, the singer of the Who, Roger Daltrey, he arrived. I, I, I was outside looking for them, you know, hoping that they were going to arrive because I got the place absolutely full. And I said, come this way, Roger. Which I took him to a side door which meant he had to walk over the stage to get to the dressing rooms round the back. And so, of course, all the, the kids saw him and, and he said, he said, where's the, where's the rest of the band? Um, I said, you're the only one here, Roger. Where's the equipment? I said, there hasn't been any equipment. <laughs> he said, how can I get out? I said, you aren't going anywhere. <laughs> and anyway, what happened? Eventually, eventually it all, uh, everything arrived. They went on, on stage I was positioned at the, at the fairly near the front, front of the stage because it was a very low stage and, and the kids were right near the stage. And um, Daltrey had a habit of putting his ha- hand down, you know, for the for the uh, the girls. girls. And, and my dad, who didn't really understand all this, he was saying, no, 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 be a good girl, no, no, you, you mustn't do that. <laughs> and then, of course... Keith Moon started to kick his drum kit up in the air yes. and everything. He was a wild man, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, that was all part of his, his thing, you know. He would... Uh, wreck the place. Wreck, wreck the drum, you know. So I managed to get across to my my dad that it was all part, you know, all part of the performance. Very good. And you were telling me about a six-piece band or something you had there that you paid not very much to, and they had somebody who went on to become famous. Oh, of course, Elton John. Yes. Yes. Elton at the Cromwellian, his I band think. Bluesology, yeah. they were my main band. And um, How much did you pay them? I think I paid them £30. A night? Yeah. <laughs> Elton John? Yeah, yeah. So when did you acquire, uh, when did you become to, come to manage the Cromwellian? Well, that came about because a friend of ours, Tony Mitchell, who had a restaurant in, in Soho, but he was opening this club in um, Cromwell Road. South Kensington. We were all invited to the opening. We used to go there regularly, but realised that perhaps the clientele wasn't of the best. And at that time, of course, you had you had some teams of villains in London. You had the Craze, you had the Richardsons. I believe the Craze were in the audience when you were wrestling. They they, they watched you on several occasions. Is that right? They used to they used to get to Wimbledon Palais. Yeah. And you had some trouble with some of their their gang, didn't you? We did, yeah. The, there was uh, the, the first night that we bought in with Tony. We just let it run, so we could sort of have a look at who was who. When, you, when was this? Mid sixties, early sixties. Anyway, there there the, the, there was quite a few people that we thought were a bit undesirable, including one chap who actually worked for the Craze, because they had a, a gambling club just down the road in Knightsbridge. So what was his name? Called Esmeralda's Barn. Yeah. And he he was known as Curly King. Curly was there, and um, Paul uh, Lincoln, who um, 
was the namesake of Paul Lincoln Managements, which was the wrestling group that I had been working for. Um, he was your partner, was he? He was, he was Australian, as was one of the other partners, Ray Hunter. So Paul said, I'll have a word with him. So he said, Curly? Curly said, yes, what is it, Paul? Because he, he knew Paul from Soho, yeah. and Paul had actually had to give him a kicking at one stage when he got out of hand. Paul said, well, we've taken over here now, Curly. He said, and I'm afraid you won't be welcome anymore. Curly said, well, that's, I'm the one. What brings them all here? Curly was the first person we barred. But then the, the next night when we opened, uh, we manned the door. And um, as the ones came to the door that we didn't want, we sort of blocked. But then, of course, we'd now lost our clientele. So yeah. we then had to build it up again. But um, that job was given to me. And I had got good knowledge of which bands were happening at the time, including Bluesology, which was Elton John's band. So, who else did you have there? I believe you, you met Jimi Hendrix, is that right? Yes. Yes, yes. Uh, what happened was, one of the animals, Chaz Chandler, who was the bass player in the animals, he was the one who, he brought Jimi over from New York. The first place they hit after the, from the airport was, was the... Uh, and uh, Chaz came to the door and we Jimmy and said, Bob, I'd like you to meet Jimmy. And I thought, my God, who's this sort of exotic looking... Uh, what was he wearing? What did he look like? He, he had a velvet jacket on, I remember. And, um, you know, it was all very, very show busy. Um, but anyway, that night, Brian and the Trinity were playing. They were a very, very good band. And um, Jimmy got up on stage with the band and uh, he had his guitar. And he just blew everybody's mind, you know. He was quite incredible. Uh, I had a, a girl working for me as a disc jockey, Kathy Edrington, her name was, and because uh, she met Jimmy that night, and she became his girlfriend, and she has written a book about Jimmy. So, Bob, tell me about when the Bee Gees came to the club. The Bee Gees, they, they came to the club, was asked to, to, uh, to put them on because Robert Stigwood, who was a great impresario, he wanted to have a look at them because Brian Epstein suggested that he should the Beatles manager. I put them on. It, it was it was a good deal for me because uh, that meant we didn't have to pay the band that night. Why not? Because they were, they were coming to to, uh, to be seen by... They were unknowns. And, um, but I said, are, are they any good? And they said, yes, don't worry, Bob, they're a good band. They were. They were very, very good. And that was what launched their career, was it? Well, yes. In fact, Robert Stigwood's partner, British partner, came up to me after and said, oh, I do hope they make it, Bob. They're such nice boys. Stigwood, uh, he took them on, promoted them, and of course they did make it and made it very, very big. Yes. You had some trouble at the, the Cromwellian there, didn't you? You had one or two altercations we, with gang members, didn't you? We did, yeah. With some of the Cray uh, uh, members, Cray gang members, uh, particularly one night, I remember, gave us um, trouble. What they did, they came in, several of them came in with uh, a girl, all of a sudden downstairs in the disco area, they came up to me and said, because um, they could see I would, you know, always wear a dinner jacket there every night, so they could see I was sort of the man in charge. They said that the girl had um, lost her handbags. They thought it had been stolen. And they sort of crowded me as they, they said it. And this um, was a pretext for trouble, was it? I sort of got that feeling. So I said, well, if you would uh, just uh, come with me, guys, you know, please, you know, if you just follow me. I shot upstairs to the entry hall where I knew... Some of our dormers were... You got some reinforcements. Yeah. Anyway, in no time at all, it sort of all... Um, kicked off. Kicked off. 
they were sort of forced out of the uh, of the club, and um, they shouting, "Get the shotgun out of the car!" Anyway, they 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 came back with pickaxe handles. Our guys managed to grab the pickaxe handles off of them and gave them a bit of a, a beating with the, their own pickaxe handles. We suddenly subsequently kept the pickaxe handles in the um, inside the grandfather clock in the in the hall. <laughs> Did you ever have need to use them? <laughs> I don't think I don't think we ever did. We managed to deal with things without using the pickaxe handles. But I believe you had a, a, a Molotov cocktail come through the window once. We did, indeed, yeah. Tell me about that. Well, it was at night, and 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 luckily it landed in. We had a, a pin table candle on. Yeah, that's right. It was a roulette table, and luckily the the bomb landed inside the table, which didn't do the table a lot of good, but it's probably saved the rest of well, the. Yeah. But of course, we had the we had the. Um, hole in the window where it would be yeah. and you told me you had the Beatles in the club did you meet the Beatles yourself did you meet each of them yes yes I did well as I say they they, they all came in for um, the party that Georgie Fame's girlfriend had yes his fiance yeah and I managed to talk to all of them particularly Ringo because he actually a, a, a guy I knew in Chomsford had gone into business with Ringo in building really in the properties yeah Tell I me what they did, the Beatles, when they were in the club. Well, as I say, that was the night where we had to sort of tell Paul McCartney that he was uh, not really doing, doing us a favour by going out and bringing in uh, people that we didn't know. So he was bringing in unauthorised guests, was he? Yes. yes. And who were they? Well, as I say, that was the, the Smithfield Market Meat Porter. And, and you had a word with Brian Epstein, did you? Well, Brian came to me and said, what was it all about? And I said, well, you know, he, he, he's got tremendous profile. And he's really got to be careful for some of these people. They, they don't take advantage of him. And um, Eric Clapton, you had him in the club too, I believe. Eric used to be in very regularly, yeah. Yes. And he liked to get up on stage and sit in. Yes. And Ginger Baker and Jack and, Bruce, and, and you he know used to, he, Eric would come to me and say, uh, do you mind if I was... I said, be my guest. Yes. Eric, you know. So, Bob, tell me about Ginger Baker in the club. Yes, well, Ginger was a great character, but he, he, he was inclined to get out of it a bit. He, he came in the, into Pantos, or not Pantos, sorry, the Conwellian one night, and the doorman weren't happy with the, with the state of him, so they, they, they wouldn't let him in. But he then um, he came back asking for me. The doorman wouldn't let him in again, you know, but he then stuck his fist through one of the uh, panes of glass in the door. Yeah. Um, anyway, he, he subsequently paid for the damage and... Uh, you know, we were friends again. Okay, good. Chris Barber, yeah. he would get up with the bands. And uh, he wasn't like a lot of the jazz people who thought that rock and roll people were, were secondary, you know, and, and inferior. He'd join in. He'd join in. But there, there again, he, he was one of the owners of the Marquee Club. And they also had the Marquee Agency, where they managed and also were agents for quite a few of the, the bands. And the Marquee actually went more rock and roll. Chris uh, used to actually say to me, Bob, you know, uh, do you mind if I am? I said, be my guest, Chris. And he'd, he'd say, I've, I've got the horn in the car. And he'd go out and get his, his trombone in and, uh, and play. And play, yeah. And I believe uh, you were promoted as a potential pop star at one stage, is that right? Yes. What happened was I'd got, I'd got a bit of a fan club as a, as a sort of a teenage idol in wrestling. There was this uh, a guy, guy called... Duncan Melvin, who was very, very gay, but he was the publicity man for the Bolshoi Ballet. Duncan leaked uh, into the hickey column in the Daily Express, 
about this young wrestler who was going to be taken by Lionel Bart, you know, made into a pop star. Yes. Um, well, because I'd never really done any singing. <laughs> Could you sing? No. <laughs> I then, we then had, I had all the press on to me, and uh, at the time I was living in a, a flat in, in Swiss Cottage, and the, the only phone we had was a coin box phone in the hall that everybody in the flats used. But somehow these press guys got hold of this number and they phoned me on that. And I said, well, I said, I'm, I'm off to Paris tomorrow because I was going to France the next day to wrestle. And they said, uh, that's right, we'll interview you there. Because Lionel Bart was such a big name. Eventually, we let this chap, David Wig, we let him, Lionel and I, let him do this bit of an article. And um, But in actual fact, I never, ever got to do any singing. <laughs> All right. Um, who else? You, you met Lulu and the animals, I believe, and people like that. Oh yes, well, they were they were they were you know every night almost uh, people that came to the Cromwellian. And David Bowie. Yes, and Bowie. Yeah. You got any stories to tell about David Bowie or? You seem to be very interested in David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is. Yeah, yeah. I, I was quite a David Bowie fo- fo- fan. I, I must admit. And you said Rod Stewart came in a lot. Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, he used to like to get in the top bar and he used to like to be with his band. And when did you acquire Pantile for the nightclub? Yes, that we, we took in 1967, yeah. Yes. And um, and how long did you have that? Had that for 40 years. Wow. And that became a very famous discotheque and nightclub, didn't it? Yes. The uh, Well, of course, the old bar was a restaurant, but the, the, you know, the, the original yes. building was, was where we held the nightclub. And I believe you were telling me you won an award. Tell me about the award and the award ceremony. Yes, well, that was uh, the Discotheque um, uh, Association, who were um, who were very big in those days. And um, every year at the NEC in Birmingham, they had a very big event where they gave awards to nightclubs that they'd been visited and uh, assessed. And uh, we were in the frame as one of four uh, possible uh, winners in for the south of england and who was doing the awards ceremony that was um jonathan ross jonathan yeah. ross he he was doing the presentation that's right anyway the various uh like the north of england and scotland and uh, places they were and then, then it came to the turn of the south of england and they did the whole thing very very well they had big screen and they put pictures you yeah. know visions of, of each club up on the screen and then the winner is pantiles I had to run up onto the stage thinking to myself that I knew I'd got to make a bit of a speech now and I thought, well, what am I going to say? The, whole, the introduction was made. Mike was handed to me. I said, well, I said, we, we, we found the Pentiles, I said, um, in the 60s. I said, as, as a, a, a derelict building. Um, I said, but its previous claim to fame had been its... So you were telling this story in front of the whole crowd at the NEC? That's right. So I, t- I said, I, you know, it's the previous claim uh, to fame of the Pentiles was an association with one of our great World War heroes, Sir Douglas Bader. And I told the story about how he lost both legs and went on to command a squadron. And I said that the, the, his association with Pantiles was that he met his wife there. Yeah. So everything's gone deathly quiet in the hall while I listened to this serious story. Then I said, but I hate to think how many totally legless blokes have met their wives there since. <laughs> because the whole place erupted. Very good. So you're on tour too. And Jonathan said, good, good, I like that, I like that. <laughs> I bet he did, I bet he did. <laughs> so Bob, did you have any famous people into Pantiles? 
Yes, we did. We had a lot of famous people in Japan Tiles. The ones I was probably most interested in were the sports stars. You know, a lot of the golfers, a lot of the, the Australians, they they came to uh, live in this area because it was near to Wentworth and also near to the airport. Yes. Roger Davis, in particular, he was one of the first. And a lot of Australians and New Zealanders. Of any, course, big, any big footballers in? Yeah, Peter Osgood, Betchenall. In fact, one night when England were uh, preparing and they... They used to all stay at a hotel where they had training facilities. Penny Hill Park? No, no, no. It was, it oh, was Bishop Abbey. Bishop Abbey. Yeah. And one night, uh, they all came over to uh, Pantiles, <laughs> the whole team. Kevin Keegan, certainly, yes. And uh, who was the goalie in that time? Peter Shilton. Peter Shilton, that's right. Yeah, we used to, we used to get uh, quite a lot of sports stars yeah. in, in. And, of course, there was Justin Rose. Justin was a frequent uh, really? visitor. Really? Yes. So tell me about Peter Osgood. I invited Peter and Alan back home for a drink, and we stood around my bar and uh, we had a drink. And Peter took his Chelsea players' cufflinks out of his shirt and gave them to me. That's very kind. And, yeah, I stayed friendly with him, and and uh, he took me because he went on to Southampton. I went down there with him for a match in yes. fact, one day, and I was very shocked when he died, and, yes. and um, I, I sent a letter to his wife, but. Yeah, that was sad because he died quite young. Yes. So looking back, what would you say was the, the biggest mistake you made? The biggest mistake, I think, was allowing my partners to sell the pentacles. Really? Yeah. You wish you'd held on to it? Yeah, I do very much. Yeah. yeah. Who would you say had the biggest influence on you in your life? Who were the big influences? In wrestling, um, originally my father, and then a chap called Al Hayes, who was one of my partners, actually, in the Cromwell. I think any young sports or show business personals has someone that they model themselves yeah. on. Al was, was uh, my choice, really, both in his personality and um, in his wrestling. He, he, in fact, he'd been a, a judo black belt yes. fourth dan before he became a pro wrestler. He subsequently went to the States and he wrestled there as Lord Hayes. And uh, he, he then, he, he, when he then stopped wrestling, he became ringside commentator on the television but he was he was a he was a great character and after you finished wrestling you went on and played golf and you you became captain of camberley heath correct right? yes and that's where we know each other because we play golf together don't we that's right <laughs> sometimes so bob what's the lesson you would say is that from your life what's the main thing you'd like to share with, with anyone listening to this in terms of a moral or a message i suppose to do your best at whatever um whatever your talent lends itself to be kind to the people around you. I've, I've also suffered a bit from um, depression. I have great sympathy for other people that have um, had that because it is an awful, awful thing. So, find out how would you like to be remembered? Well, I like to be. I'd like to be remembered well by my sons and daughters. I love them all very much. I have three daughters and two sons from three different. Uh, well, not married. Just two of them are married. Just, <laughs> But uh, they're all great, great kids and uh, varying ages. Okay. Bob, thank you very much. Okay. (laughs) 